Uh, If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to start in verse 1 tonight. This week, we're going to begin a series called Seasons. Um, As summer turns to fall, we get to see every year in this part of the country, anyways, um, one of the most beautiful displays of nature um, changing, and it happens all around us. You know, the leaves, they change change from that, that deep green color to just a beautiful variety of reds and oranges and yellows. We get to watch that happen. Um, the days get shorter, you know. The heat and the humidity of summer gives way to that crisp, cool air of autumn. It's just nice to come out once fall starts and take a breath in the morning, isn't it? And you can you see that breath when it releases. You just you can you can feel the change happening. Uh, there's another indicator. I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but here in Cincinnati. Uh, there's this other anomaly. I'm not sure it's even natural, but lines at coffee shops will become ridiculously long as people line up like teenagers, you know, teenage girls at a Justin Bieber concert to get anything with pumpkin spice in it. Uh, I'm not sure if that's everywhere else, but some, for some reason here, I mean, the first fall leaf you saw, all that was happening on social media for everyone in Cincinnati was, pumpkin spice, when's it coming? Someone let me know. And I'm like, man, whoever makes that stuff is bankrolling. So... I don't know what's in it, but uh, I probably don't want to either. So, uh, but the changing of natural seasons, it's, it's really a good reminder to us of the fact that growth and progress and survival all depend on the ability to change. And this week we're going to establish a simple but profound truth. Our title is simply Change Happens. We're going to address full force the fact that it's pretty much inescapable. We're going to have to deal with change. The question is, how do we? So uh, let's read Ecclesiastes 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to go to verse 4. A little deviation from normal. Normally, I read out of the New American Standard Bible. I'm going to read the King James Version. So some of you above 40 are just going to get really excited right now. And some of the other you are going to say, what the heck is that? Um, There's actually not very many these and thous in this. So um, I I, I like the way it's worded in the King James. So uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Ben Franklin is credited with saying this when you're finished changing, you're finished. And this may seem elementary or overly simple, but we will be better equipped to handle change, both the expected kind and the unexpected kind, if we're able to settle two things in our hearts. There's two things, if we can just settle that these are true. When change happens, whether it's the kind we see coming, which let's be honest, that's easier to deal with, right? Or the change that just kind of blindsides us and we don't see coming. If we believe these two things, we will be better equipped to handle it. The first thing we need to believe, the first thing we need to understand, the first thing we need to come to terms with is very simply, change happens. It's going to happen. Here's the thing. As a matter of fact, one of three things is almost always true. If you think about your life, you'll see that this is true. Most of the time, either something has just changed, something is changing, or something is about to change. This is true almost all of the time. Uh... It's, it'd be the exception and not the rule to find yourself in a long, a long period of time where it's just static. Nothing's changing. Nothing's moving. That's not normal. Normally, something somewhere in some area of your life is transforming. It's growing, changing. Something's going on. So we need to, we need to know how to handle that. Here's the second thing. So change happens. If we just know that we quit being surprised by that, that'll help us to deal with it better. And here's the second thing we should believe and understand that'll help us. God is in control, and he can be trusted. You believe that? I'm telling you. He's proved it. One of the reasons we often try our best to avoid change is that it brings with it uncertainty. You see that connection? You see how when when things have been the way they've been, I, I get some time to figure this out. But then when change happens, it brings with it this uncertainty, and oftentimes that causes us to avoid it. Uncertainty challenges our idols of comfort and control. Now, is there anyone in here willing to admit, and I'll go first to make it easy for you, that you like to control most everything going on in your life, as much as you possibly can, 
it's just easier, right, if I just can, can keep it all under control. I'll go first. Yes. Okay. The rest of you are lying. No, I love you. Um, when we fear change, or even if we don't like it very much, it normally reveals one of two sinful attitudes. It reveals either pride or a lack of trust in God. Who is our Heavenly Father and has done much to earn our trust? Trusting Him in, in one way is a way that we worship Him. Have you ever thought of it that way? That when you trust God, it communicates to Him. Whether, whether it's trusting Him just in that quiet time of, of, of prayer when you're going before Him, you're bringing before Him your prayers and petitions, you can do that. You know that, right? The Bible tells us, imagine this. The God of the universe invites us, His children, to freely bring the things on our minds. And He says He'll hear, listen, and care about it. If you've already gotten over that fact and that doesn't make you want to stand up, lift your hands, and worship him, I would, I would ask you to think about it more. The very fact that God hears our prayers. I'm very, very thankful for that. I, I mean, there's nobody else that I need to hear what I got to say other than him. He's got all the power that it takes to handle anything. He can, he can give me wisdom when it's wisdom I need. Healing. You know what? That... There's a lot of folks in our church family struggling right now. We got kids, some kids that are sick. Sometimes when the seasons change, not only is it a good time to talk about change and how we handle it, but sometimes it affects people's bodies physically. I don't know about you where you're at. I just believe God's a healer, and he's really mighty and powerful. Let's stop right now in the middle of this sermon and pray for anybody that's sick, okay? Will you do that with me? Join your faith with mine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you, and I thank you, Lord, that you hear this prayer. Lord, this is one of the reasons I trust you, because I've seen you time and time again. When I come, little old me, who matters nothing in the grand scheme of all the universe and all that, that lies within your powerful hands, but God, you stop and incline your ear to hear me. Treat me like a son. And Lord, you hear this prayer even now. And so God, you said I could bring my concerns to you. Lord God, you, you told us to to operate as a church family like one body. If one of us is rejoicing, we all rejoice. If one of us mourns, we all mourn. And so, Lord God, uh, even if one of us is sick, Lord, we feel that. And so we care about it. And we just join our faith with every single person that's dealing with infirmity right now that's a part of Love City. God, we ask you to touch their body right now. Lord God, that they, would, that they would be healed. We ask that your will would be done in that situation. We ask, Lord, that you'd bring comfort Build up their faith by your Holy Spirit. Remind them of every scripture they've ever read. Lord God, that would tell them that you're a mighty healer. You're faithful and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for doing that. Whether we like it or not, change is going to happen. If we accept this undeniable truth, then the next logical question is, how do we deal with it? Right, So if you'll come to the table with me and you'll agree, yes, change is going to happen. It really doesn't matter how hard I work to insulate my life from it. No matter what, something somewhere in some part of my life is going to change. And so that means we're going to have to deal with it. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to let our minds be washed with the water of the word. And we have to let our thinking be conformed to what it is God would teach us about change. Because there's other options other than a biblical approach to change, is it not? How many of you run with those a lot of times? Freak out? Yes. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, right? And so we just, we totally go over the edge and just start thinking of all the worst case scenarios. Oh my God, how's this going to go? Some of us, instead of freaking out, guys, some of you go straight into, I can fix this mode, right? Because we're guys and we can do it. We can fix it. That's what we do. We fix stuff. Problem solvers. I would rather you be that way than just, you know, lay down and, and cry and get all emotional if you're a guy. However, sometimes what we need to do is stand up, be strong, but be strong in our faith that God is going to be able to lead us through, show us what to do, give us the power to get it fixed. Amen. Okay? Because we don't always have what it takes. It's very good for us to understand and rejoice in the fact, men, that we don't have what it takes to fix every problem. We don't. And God does that on purpose. Because if we did, we'd get really prideful and decide we don't need him, which men tend to do. Mankind tends to do. <clears throat> okay. All right. So uh, change is going to happen. So how do we deal with it? Does the Bible say anything about how Christians should think about and react to the inevitable seasons of life? The answer is the Bible has a lot to say about it. 
And we're going to mine the scriptures together over the next few weeks for all the precious treasures of wisdom and insight that the Bible will provide for us on this subject. So I'm really excited about that. My hope for this series is to take us from hating or at best tolerating change to being grateful for it. That's a flip, isn't it? This can only happen if we trust ourselves and our plans less and trust King Jesus and his plans more. It's going to be key to us going from hating or at best tolerating change to actually being grateful for it, to trusting that if something's changing, God's in it, to trust that if something's changing, whether I saw it coming or not, that God has a plan, that he's faithful, he's not going to let me down. Now, everyone knows that growth is an important part of our walk with Christ, right? Everyone would understand that. Many of us would say without hesitating that something that's not growing is dying. Anybody ever heard anybody say that before? If you're not growing, you're dying. If you're not growing, you're not alive. There's different ways that it comes out. So we understand that growth is important. Now, as we stretch our thinking together on this subject, I want to pose this question to all of us. I want us to think through this together. We all would say, yes, you should grow as a Christian, but here's my question. Can you grow without change? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I believe the answer is no. And I think that goes for individuals. It goes for families, churches, and really any other organism or organization. Change is required for growth. So, uh, if everyone knows that growth is an important part of our walk with Christ then what we're doing there is we're really simultaneously admitting that, that, grow, that, that change is as important as growth. They go together. You can't really take them apart from each other. Yet sometimes I catch myself wishing things could grow without change. I look at my kids, especially, especially my three-year-old Lucy, and I often wish that she could just stay just like she is. Honestly, as far as Max is concerned, um, if I'm being honest, if he could, I mean, he can grow a little bit, and I'm not going to be sad about it. If he can get past the eat, sleep, fill his pants phase, you know, I'll be, I'll be thrilled. I need to get him, I got to get him to the, like, use the toilet and be able to wrestle phase. And then if he could just stop there, that would be good, because then I'll know what to do with him. You know what I mean? No, I just hold him, and he pukes. You know what I mean? It's like, are you hungry? What are you doing? Is there something in your drawers? I don't know. It's hard. So I need to be able to talk, communicate, and... and you know, be in control of his body enough to wrestle, and then we'll be good. We'll be able to relate to each other on a higher level. But um, <laughs> no. <laughs> but seriously, how many how many women in here that that have had kids? They you 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 would at least understand this sentiment. How many mamas have wished that their cuddly little babies would just stay babies, just all the time, forever? Right? Mamas mamas understand that. Um, and the thing is, I often look at Lucy and like. She's just, she's just so, to me, darn beautiful, and she's smart as a whip, and like she still gets excited when I get home, you know, and like she asks me to cuddle with her, and I just never want that to end. It's, you know, it'd probably be weird if she did that when she's 15, you know, so at some point I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to let go of that, um, <laughs> but I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want it to change, you know? But, you know, I, I, I do. I wish she could just stay her cute little curly, blonde hair, blue-eyed, cuddly self. But it'd be really unfair and confusing for me to ask her to grow, but not to change. It, it really doesn't even make sense. It, it's kind of a nonsensical statement. And it's really no different for us in our teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and on through. We all would agree that we should never stop growing, right? Right? We all should agree that we should never stop growing. Everyone, yes. If I'm alive and I'm breathing, I should be growing, learning something, doing something, growing as a person, yeah? But then, so then we have automatically and simultaneously agreed that we should never stop changing. See how I sucked you in there? No, I don't need to change, but I got you to agree. You can't grow without change, and we should be growing. And so change is inevitable. Change is needed. Change is good. I realize there are bad changes, there are unexpected changes, but even in the midst of those, the Bible gives us instructions, doesn't it? That when we're in the middle of a fiery trial, here's why Christians are weird. 
The Bible tells us in several places when we're in the middle of a change we didn't see coming and one that's bad, one that has negative consequences, the Bible tells us to rejoice. Does that in Romans 5, does it in the book of James. Several times the scriptures instruct Christians, when you're in the middle of something you don't like, a change that's rocking your world, here's what God expects of you. Lift your hands and worship. That's weird. Who else does that? Normally when things go bad, what do we do? We complain, right? We grumble, whatever, express our, our displeasure with it. God calls us to rejoice in it and worship. It's because... That only sounds weird to us because we don't understand how God uses change and difficulty and tribulation. See, what, what the Bible would tell us is that what God's doing in the midst of that, this is why prosperity theology is a total lie and it's garbage. Anybody that's going to tell you, serve, serve the Lord and everything will always be good, never have any problems, you'll always have everything you need, never get sick, have more money than you need, la da 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 Listen. God does bless his children, and God does take care of us, and he does promise to take care of our needs. However, he lovingly does not promise us that he will never let us endure pain, difficulty, or struggle, and here's why. Because the scriptures tell us that in the midst of that, what's happening is, if we will rejoice and understand that tribulation gives way to perseverance. Let me ask you a question. Can you persevere? Do you have an opportunity to persevere? If there is no difficulty, no, it, does, it doesn't even make sense, right? There's, what are you going to persevere through? If everything's going your way all the time, you wake up every day and it all goes your way. Some of us think that's what we want. Some of us think that's what God is, that he's a big pinata, you know. You whack him with the faith stick and we get what we want. That's not how it works at all. As a matter of fact, sometimes God... Uh, like a perfect loving father, he, he will let us endure difficulty because what the scriptures tell us is happening is there. If we will persevere, then what is built in us through that process is character. Character is built through the perseverance process. You cannot persevere if there, if there is not difficulty. So if we would stop having that reaction that we're always tempted to have, as soon as difficulty presents itself, as soon as something we didn't see coming crops up, as soon as we realize we're in the midst of a change that we don't like, don't want, didn't see coming, if instead of freaking out, fixing it ourselves, complaining, grumbling, all those other options, if we would learn to do what we're called to do all the time anyways, if we would worship in the midst of that, we would see God take us through that process. He would give us the strength to persevere. Character would be built in us. And then the scriptures say, at the end of Romans, uh, that right around Romans 5, it talks about that as we, after, after that character is built, that what's left in us is a proven hope. 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 Because, here's the thing. We think of the word hope, and we think... Uh, just kind of positivity, right? Like, I'm hopeful, so... Generally, I'm of a disposition that things are going to go okay eventually, right? But this, this, is, not, this is not really what's, what it's talking about there. See, you have a different kind of hope. Hope takes on a different meaning when it's born of the fact that you have encountered difficulty, tribulation, trial. When you have encountered that, you have rejoiced in the middle of it, persevered through it by God's power, had character built in you, seen the deliverance of the Lord. When you've walked through that process, now you have reason for a a proven hope. You have a reason to have hope that is substantiated. It's not fanciful. It's not because you've watched enough Disney movies that you know it always turns out okay. It's a hope born of the fact that God has proven himself again and again and again and again to be faithful. If, if we, and we shouldn't even need personal experience because we have the scriptures. How many times did it look hopeless and yet God came through? How many times is there situations where the Israelites face a sea on one side and an army coming to destroy them on the other and God takes them through because they're willing to obey, they're willing to trust him and walk with him. It's what we're called to. It's what we're called to. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. Yet the call of the scriptures is, is for us to do this. And so, and the more you do that, the more hope builds up because you walk through that process rightly. See, a lot of people, they jump out they jump out in the middle. See, tribulation comes. It's time to rejoice. They don't do that. 
And then God tries to still help them and lead them through and build some character in them and, and give them the power to persevere. And they just, they can't handle it. They don't understand that it's actually for their good. For whatever reason, they just jump out of the process. They go do something else. I can't handle this. They freak out, geek out, go do something, go, you know, find peace in a bottle or somewhere else. Go find peace in a person other than Christ. They jump out of the process. They don't let God lead them through it. And they end up uncharactered. They end up without hope and they end up without joy. It's tragic because all the time the scriptures told us, if you just trust him, he'll get you through. Not always easy, but it's right. And it's, it leads to more joy. It leads to more joy. God never ever commands us something that's not going to lead to our joy. It might mean that we have to fight through, but it's going to be by his power anyways. You just got to trust him. I think the kids are listening to the sermon. They were amening right there. That's pretty good. I didn't know we were live streaming to the kids' ministry. That's awesome. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Philippians 4, verse 10. There's a potential for an overcorrection as we teach on change here that I want to address from the beginning, and, and we'll honestly, we'll probably mention it throughout this to make sure that we don't make this mistake, because I'm encouraging you to be aware in yourself of a tendency to dislike change, of a tendency to, to not trust the Lord when change comes, and we, we could, we have a tendency sometimes when, when things like this are taught to overcorrect, and so... I don't want to take you from a fear of change to making an idol out of it, okay? So, because uh, that could happen. So we don't want to create a group of people who are bored to tears and complaining if something, you know, is not mind-blowingly different about their life every week, right? And so they, they just decide it's not worth living anymore. We don't want to do that. The key here is, is really is humble trust in God's perfect timing, and that will lead to the beautiful word called contentment, okay? And Paul's going to deal with that here. Uh, in his scripture to, or his letter to the Philippians, rather. So uh, if you turn with me to Philippians 4, we're going to start in verse 10, okay? And we're going to read to verse 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we see here that Paul refers to contentment as a secret. Did you catch that? And it, that gives us the idea that contentment is a virtue or it's a positive characteristic that eludes many people. Contentment doesn't come easy. It's a gift of, of the Spirit. It's something that has to come through relationship with Christ and through walking with Him because it's not natural. Yes, sir. Um, our natural disposition is not to be content with little or with much. Typically, our natural disposition is to want more of something somewhere not to focus so much on what we're grateful for that we have now, but to focus on what we wish we had later, right? And so Paul said there's a secret, though. There's a secret to life here, and it's called contentment. I've learned to live with much and with little, in difficulty and in times of peace. He's content. Now, we also see in verse 13 a very well-known promise, but sometimes it gets taken out of context. And so since we were here... I figured we would take a moment. And some of you will not like this, full disclaimer. So here we go. Uh, oftentimes people will quote Philippians 4.13, right? It's a very, uh, there's actually a um, pretty well-known athlete. has got a tattooed right across his chest. I don't, doesn't mean that he doesn't know what it means. But um, oftentimes people quote it as if they believe it means that God will empower them to do anything they put their mind to, right? Let's read it again. What's it say? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, I'm going to teach you something about context here. I'm going to teach you something about how to read your Bible. What you don't do is open your Bible to Philippians 4.13 and go, I can do all things through him who strengthens me and say, okay, 
Now, let me go out and live my life based on that one verse without reading any of the ones around it so that I have any idea of the context or what the heck's actually going on there, right? And that's sometimes what we do. I don't know when it started, but at some point we like to lift little inspirational verses out of the Bible, put them on a bumper sticker, a t-shirt, a fridge magnet, or some other thing, and, and build a doctrine off of that. And that's oftentimes leads us to error and to trouble, okay? Um, so oftentimes people will quote Philippians 4.13, and they think that that means anything they decide that they're going to do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, anything I put my mind to. So, you know, I'm going to run a marathon, or I'm going to become president, or... You know, I'm going to eat the spiciest pepper in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Here's the thing, my friend. God will give you the strength to drive to the ER when that pepper begins to burn a hole in the lining of your stomach. That's what he's going to give you the power to do. Okay? Now, I'm not saying God doesn't have all the power in the world. Don't misunderstand me. However, we can't take this verse and take it to mean anything I decide I want to do, that God's going to give me the strength to do that. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens. We have to read the verses above it. What's he talking about? What's the context? Okay? Um, and I'm not saying that God will not give you the strength to accomplish certain goals. He absolutely does that. Hear me say that. God will empower you. It's necessary to make it through this life, really, uh, to have his power. It's impossible to do it otherwise. But he does that if those goals align with his will. Okay? Many times throughout the scriptures, it's made clear to us that that's the case. So here's the, I'll give you another example. If you start swimming from the East Coast towards England uh, because you want to save on airfare, let's say, right? And, and you decide the whole way I'm going to quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You're not going to be eating crumpets and drinking tea in a few days. They're going to be salvaging your body, okay? <laughs> like you're going to die at sea. That's how it's going to go. I, now, and here's the thing. Some people may not like that. Well, God could do that. God could give me the strength to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. If you're mad at me right now, and you don't like that I said you should not start swimming from pick your spot on the American East Coast, start swimming towards England, claiming this as a promise that God's going to strengthen you to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. If you're that adamant about it, please prove me wrong. I'll buy you a swimsuit. Okay? And here's the thing. It ain't going to happen. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not promising you that if you decide... I'm going to swim across the Atlantic, that God's going to, you know, supernaturally give you bionic arms and legs and allow you to do that. Now, I'm not saying there's, there's not cases where, you know, somebody's in a car crash and needs to get their kids out of the car. I've heard stuff about, you know, moms that are five foot enough and 115 pounds, you know, picking cars up and stuff. Sure. I mean, God can do anything if it aligns with his will. Okay. And if I guess I should leave a possibility open that God wanted to prove his power by empowering someone to swim across the Atlantic, I guess. But that's not going to be uh, probably commonplace. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Could he? Yes. Would he? I don't think so. I don't think he would. Um, you know, and you might say, how, how dare you say that God won't give me the strength to cross, you know, cross the Atlantic Ocean? And I just, I mean... If you're sure, then, then do it. <laughs> Here's the thing. What this verse in context is really telling us is that God, God will give us the strength to endure. And I would go so far as to say to be grateful for change. Let's read it one more time together. And after all of that, let's, let's look at it again. What is, let's start in verse 11. What's really being said here? Why does Paul end it with, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's he talking about beforehand? What's God giving him the strength to do? Let's look at it. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, he's not talking about contentment. He's not talking about the fact that God has taught them, him this deep secret of contentment to be grateful in whatever situation he's in. He's not talking about all of that and then jumps to this total other deal he wants to talk about, which is God will give you the strength to do whatever, including fly. No, he's talking about the fact that God will give you the strength to be content in whatever situation. And that's hard, isn't it? Is that hard? Let's be honest. Does that take God's help, grace, power, anointing? Yes. 
Does that take understanding beyond probably our own natural thinking processes most of the time? Yes, because it is not normal to be grateful, content, happy in the midst of little and in the midst of much. Most of the time, most of us, even in much, we want muchier, right? I mean, don't we get caught up in that? Because there's always someone that's got more. There's always someone that's got different, shinier, newer, better. And that's a shame. I'm not saying you can't have any desires for anything material. That's, that's an overcorrection as well. God will bless you. He'll take care of you. And he will, he will let you steward material things for his glory and for the furthering of his kingdom. Yes, absolutely. But we have to keep in mind that that's what it's for. It's not just to tickle my fancy, show off to my friends, and let everybody know how awesome I am. Okay? Um, Paul is saying here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is, I can have a little bit and I can be grateful. I can have a lot, I can be grateful. I can be starving to death and be grateful. Yes, sir. I can have a really full belly and be thankful. I can have clothes on my back or I can be in tattered rags after a shipwreck. And I can be grateful. It takes, it takes supernatural strength to be that way. If most of us are honest and we look at our lives, we wouldn't get 100% on that. But here's the great hope. We do have this verse and we do have this promise. So instead of, you know, the next time, <laughs> you know, the next time you decide you're going to break the high jump record saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the next time something, the, the ball drops, something hits from the side that you didn't see coming, some drastic change rocks your life, come on and claim this verse because that's what it's actually talking about. You want to claim a promise, you want to claim a verse, you want to write it on an index card and stick it in your windshield, hallelujah, glory, just do it right. You want to put it on the fridge, just at least know what, what we're talking about here. So when you're in the midst of a battle, the next one, and it's hard, and, and, and you feel like giving up, and you don't have what it takes, then say, Amen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. And you will absolutely have a right to that promise. But please, dear ones, don't take this and just plaster it to whatever you decided needs to be accomplished whatever goal you've set for yourself. That's not what it's saying here. It's not what it's saying, okay? This verse in context really is telling us God will give us the strength to endure and be grateful for change. This takes an immense amount of strength and the grace of God because it's so opposite our natural tendencies. Naturally, we want to, naturally we want to get to a comfortable, manageable, consistent state of affairs that we can handle. Is that true? It's true for a lot of us. The problem is this always leads to the sin of pride and self-sufficiency. This is why we preach the gospel here so much. It's not only to give hope to those that have not heard it. That is primary and number one. Yes, we are called to let everybody know that though sin separates, God has made a way for us to be reconciled. Amen. We do preach the good news of the gospel of Christ to those that have not heard it. However, we need to have it preached to us because it rightly shatters every possibility for us to think we've got this thing figured out. Because the gospel preached rightly is not just saying to people, Jesus loves you, Jesus saves. Because if you just say Jesus loves you, Jesus saves, they may accept the first premise. Well, sure, I've heard that all my life. Jesus loves me. Yes, okay, that's great. But then when you say Jesus saves without any context before, without letting them know the rest of the gospel message... They can rightly ask. It's logical for them to say, from what? I, I, <laughs> I admire the passion of those that in the past have stood on a corner and yelled at the top of their lungs that Jesus saves. We could do with some of that passion. I just wish they would add to it the understanding that that's not the full message. And the first part of the gospel, the bad news of the gospel, the bad news that makes the good news so good, it's good for us to hear that because it reminds us all the time that we are not all sufficient and that we don't have it all figured out. And that if it were not for the grace and the mercy of Christ, who does love us, we'd be shattered and broken, Amen. useless to everyone, including ourselves, Amen. dead in our sins. And so the gospel preached rightly comes and brings a full frontal assault against the sins of pride and self-sufficiency. 
And that's part of why we preach the gospel here so much. It, it, um, it shatters every possibility for us to think that we have it all figured out. It points to our minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day need for the God who made us. It tells us of our desperate insufficiency. But it doesn't stop there, and it doesn't leave us hopeless, and that's the great thing. See, sometimes it's rarer in this day and age. More, more people have dropped the front part. More, more, more ministries have dropped the bad news of the gospel because to say things like sin and to let people know that they're broken without Christ uh, may hurt their self-esteem. So m- more often than not, you'll see that part of it dropped off. In the past and, and, and still in some places, they forget the good news. They just say the bad news over and over. You're a sinner. You're lost. You're a sinner. You're lost. Hell is hot. Don't go there. But they forget to come on the backside of that. Thank you. Thank you, passionate preacher, for letting everyone know and having the guts to tell someone that sin leads to death. Thank you. But we must also say there's a way out. (laughs) There is hope always. And for every person that will cling, that will cling to Christ our Savior, that will put all of their faith in his finished work. We must have both pieces. We must tell the truth in its entirety. It doesn't stop there and leave, it ho- leave us hopeless. It then tells us of the perfect and ultimate sufficiency of King Jesus, our Savior. The gospel preached rightly lets us know of our need, but then it lets us know the solution. The gospel preached rightly lets us know that we got no shot in and of ourselves, but that Jesus has done all of the work for us, and all we have to do is trust and believe. And you see, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard for people to pick apart and understand because it, it, it seems as you read the scriptures that it, it isn't just trusting and believing. There's so many scriptures that say that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but then there's all these other commands, and we're still in the New Testament. There's, th- there's things that go along with that. Is how do I pick that? I don't understand how that works. It still seems like there's demands above the faith. Here's the thing. What is required for you to go from dead in your sins, from being in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, is faith in Christ and his finished work. Here's what you will find as soon as you are willing to put faith and trust in Jesus. You will find a desire to do the rest of the stuff. All of the things that come with it, all of the rest of what the New Testament explains to us is our requirements. Things like forgiving people. Doesn't it seem in the scriptures, doesn't it seem at the end of the Lord's prayer that we are told if we refuse to forgive people, we will not be forgiven. What does that, I mean, that tells me there's something going on there. But here's the deal. I don't go around trying to forgive people so that I can be saved. I forgive people because I've been forgiven. I don't, I don't go around and I don't try to sacrifice my own convenience and my, and my own plan to, to try to love and be a, a help and a blessing to other people so that I'll be saved. I do that because Jesus sacrificed everything. He was really inconvenient to get nailed to a cross for a guy like me. Amen. And so I'm going to follow after him. It's a response. You will find that it will not be difficult if you will trust Christ and maybe that... That's the problem is oftentimes we get it inverted. We, we try to do all the stuff that should be out of a response and out of gratitude for the grace that God gives us. We try to do all that stuff first. You're not going to be able to do it. It won't work. You're not going to have the power that comes in relationship. That's why we have to have the Holy Spirit. Humans don't do good at selfless. We are, we are perennially selfish. Our default mode is, is, to, is to take care of us. But that's what happens when, when Christ comes in and changes a, a man and a woman's heart. It, everything changes. Desires change. It, some of you don't even, you, you, you're going to struggle to believe this. It gets to the point where you don't want to sin. It's not that, and, and, obviously we're talking, there's sanctification, it's, it's not that, there's ever this point where the temptation is completely and totally eradicated. That's not going to happen. We are always running this race. We are always going to have the tendency for our feet to get entangled in temptation. But I have much less desire to do many of the dumb things that I used to do now than I did 10 years ago, 
And I was a Christian that whole time. The more I learn about Jesus, the more I become convinced of his love for me, the more I realize how much he's given. The less sin even looks like a good option. The more I understand how much I've been loved, it just really makes it easy to be loving. It's, it's less of this like white knuckle, okay, I've got to be nice to people because Jesus told me to. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like that. It's, you f- his character starts to flow out of you. It just, it, all of your natural stuff starts to be replaced with this spiritual stuff, and it's, it's beautiful. And so um, that's why the gospel is... It's our great hope. That's why we won't stray from it. We're going to talk in this series about the need for change, the need for ministries to be able to be adaptable and to change. We, we will have to be flexible, and we will have to be willing to change methods in the way that we present the gospel, but we will never, ever, ever flee from the gospel. I don't care how offensive it gets. I don't care how much our culture rails against Words like sin and hell and forgiveness and heaven and Jesus. It doesn't matter. I don't care if God takes us up out of this basement, puts us in another facility so we can keep growing, and then we have to run back and hide in the basement. We will not, we will not stray from the gospel. It is what we have to preach. It is our precious jewel. And so let me, let me make sure you know what I'm talking about. When I say gospel, this is the deal. It's the bad news first, then it's the good news. The bad news is that God created us lovingly. He created us perfect. He placed us in a garden, and we fell. God said, don't touch one tree, and what did we do? We had to touch it, right? That curiosity got us. Tempted by the evil one, our enemy, we fell. And the Bible tells us that at that point, sin entered the world. That mankind from that point on is born with sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. Every single one of us, Romans 3 is clear, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us is perfect. And most of us don't need help to know that. Most of us are self-aware enough to know that we've not hit perfection. And here's the thing. What is required, the scriptures are clear. To be in relationship with a God who is holy and perfect is perfection. That's bad news. That's real bad news. And if we stopped there, that'd be very hopeless because I'm out. I'm totally out of the game. If what is required to be in relationship with a perfect God is perfection, I can't come. I don't get to play. But that's not where it ends. That's where the good news rushes in. And it lifts us up and it brings joy to us because Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. That's why he was born of a virgin, not born of a man, not born of the seed of man. Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He did it. That life that... All of us couldn't do. We couldn't pull it off. He did it. Never sinned, but was tempted in every way that we are. The Bible is clear on that. He didn't get to cheat because he was God in the flesh. Somehow that miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus restricted his deity to the point that he could feel temptation in the way that we do. And Hebrews tells us that makes him a high priest that isn't unable to relate to us. But that he understands that's why so many times in our sermons, when I'm trying to, I try to take you back to Jesus. Did Jesus do this? Did Jesus experience this? Did Jesus have to deal with this? I want you to see that he came and lived. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He dealt with the difficulties of being human just like we do. And he didn't get a free pass. He was baptized in the River Jordan. Then he was given the, the power of the Holy Spirit to do ministry the same way we are. He was tempted just like we are, but he never sinned. And and that fact, the fact that he was perfect, it allowed him to step in our place. God said, you the perfect one. 
You can step in and you can take the punishment they all deserve, and I will count that as justice. I will let them off if you are willing to do that. And we see Jesus' humanity in the garden, don't we? In Gethsemane, he's, he is sweating drops of blood, so vexed at the understanding of what he's about to go through. I think less the physical torture and more the fact that he knows he's going to become sin for us. He's going to take the weight of the sin of the world, and this is going to cause for him separation from God the Father for a time. Yes. To know perfect unity with God the Father, but have to be separated from it. This is the highest price that Jesus paid, and we see that he, we see that, that we see his humanity come through as he even prays, asking God, "Lord, please, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me." He knew there wasn't, but he's just so desperate to not go through the hell he was going to have to go through to pay the price for us, and yet he did it. Nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. And then he goes, submits himself to the guards, takes the beating. Carries the crossbar, lets them, lets them understand, lets them nail him to the cross. Don't get it twisted. We're still talking about the king of glory here. We're still talking about the one that commands legions of angels. And at any point, had his resolve faltered, has his love for you faltered? Had it not been enough for him to go through what he was going through? At a snap of his fingers, all of heaven would have rushed. To destroy those who were nailing the king of the cross. And yet, he resisted that temptation. Knowing that his mission had to be fulfilled. Because you and me, how is that possible? I know me. I don't know about you, but I, I am very aware. that I am not near worthy of that kind of sacrifice. How is it, Philippians tells us that Jesus considered... You and me more important than himself. That's the only way he could do what he did. Somehow he, with all the mind of divinity, considered us more important than himself, willing to sacrifice himself like that. And then Philippians closes all the loopholes for us and says that we should have that same mind. So that means in every circumstance, I consider you more important than me because I'm not more important than Jesus. I'm not, but he, he acted like I was. That's what the cross was about. The end of the good news portion is that Jesus didn't stay dead because here's the thing, death had no claim to him. And so death, hell, lies, and sin, were cre- they were defeated. Three days later, that's what Easter's about. That's why we party on Easter. That's why it's less about peeps and eggs and it's all about a risen king, man. The tomb couldn't hold him. He didn't stay dead. From death to life, he rose, triumphant. Proved it to a bunch of people. Showed himself to a bunch of people. See, that's why the haters and the doubters and the naysayers for the last 2,000 years have not, don't you think that... The story of the resurrection, these scriptures that we believe, do you not think they've been scrutinized? They have been hated and blasphemed throughout human history since the the events in them happened. The best minds have tried to pick this apart. But it's pretty hard to disprove when Jesus showed himself to hundreds of people, alive and well. Then we've got fools saying things like, oh, well, then... The only way that's true is he didn't die on the cross. You'll hear this again at Easter. It gets me fired up every year. Because the swoon theory idiots come out every year to say, okay, Christians, have your fun at Easter, but he didn't really die. So eat some jelly beans, but quit worshiping this guy. Oh, here's the thing. He took a beating that, that killed many, many people. That 40 lashings just to get things going, a lot of guys just died right there. As ribbons of flesh are pulled off their back. I mean, we're talking rib cage exposed. This is the kind of beating the king took. Then they load the cross member on him, have him walk to Golgotha. Then they drive nails through the most sensitive nerve centers in the whole body. Right here through the wrists and through his feet. And so he, he's up there for a while bleeding out like that. 
Then just to make sure, they take a spear at the end, drive it up into his heart sack. I'm sure. I'm sure they got some Hebrew band-aids out and just wrapped him up, right? Gauzed him up and three days later, he, he came out well enough without the medical technology we have today to, to, to run around, eat fish, hang out, tell stories, have Bible studies with people, walk miles with guys. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Makes no sense. Jesus did die. And it was for you and me, and he did rise, and he is the king of glory, and he does sit right now at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, for you and me. Still, he does it still, even for those of us that know the truth, and yet even today did said and thought dumb stuff, contrary to what he expects of us. He still sits there, says, I love them. I died for them. This blood covers them. They'll repent, they're forgiven. That's, it's not hard to serve a God like that. Now, if we were running some kind of deal in the past where, you know, I had to come sacrifice one of my kids, bring bread and grapes, and feed, feed my God every week, and, you know, light some incense and hum. Like, if it was one of those deals, I could understand religion kind of dropping off and going away. Sure. It's not hard to worship a God that was willing to become a man, to suffer like me, to live like me, and yet do it perfectly, and then die for me. And not only that, but then empower me to live like him, to walk out and follow his example. It's not even hard. It's not hard to worship him. It's not hard to give. It's not hard to be generous. It's, it's not hard to live in light of that. It's not hard to be a Christian. I, I really don't understand when people say that. It, it, just, it just makes me think they don't understand. It makes me think they need to hear the gospel again. 